0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True
1: North. Coming up, Ontario police say no to a police state, the perils of the COVID-0 strategy, and the media's war on social conservatives. The Andrew Lawton Show
0: starts right now.
1: Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. 420, as the kids say, or at least as the kids said when I was a kid. I think there was a distant version of me that would have been snickering at the idea of doing a 420 show. But alas, here we are. No snickers to be had, not in the province of Ontario at least, in which the police fought back against the police state. This is a very good narrative to emerge when police are finding that the enforcement powers that are being heaped upon them by the province are just too much and they don't want to play ball. It all started on Friday with this announcement. We have made the difficult but necessary decision to give police and bylaw officers special authorities to enforce public health measures for the duration of the stay at home order. Special authorities, hmm? Well, what might those special authorities be, Premier? here's solicitor general sylvia jones
2: as a government it is our responsibility to take action to address non-compliance and prevent further transmission of COVID-19. 19. that is why after consulting with public health experts we have made the deliberate decision to temporarily enhance police officers authority for the duration of the stay-at-home order moving forward police will have the authority to require any individual who is not in a place of residence to first provide their purpose for not being at home and provide their home address. Police will also have the authority to stop a vehicle, to inquire about an individual's reason for leaving their residence.
1: So the Ontario government's antidote to COVID-19, warrantless detention, baseless questions, fishing expeditions, demanding people tell the law enforcers why they dare to be outside their homes. Now, this adoption of a police state is not something that the police asked for, nor is it something the police wanted. And this was something on Friday I saw starting to break down. I think the very first was the Waterloo Regional Police, which is a a large police agency across the region in southwestern Ontario, Waterloo, Kitchener area, etc. And they came out and said, we have no interest in doing random stops. We have no intention of doing random stops. And this started a cascade throughout multiple police agencies, big and small in Ontario, the London Police Service, the York Regional Police Service, Halton Police Service, all of these other regional and municipal police departments. Whereas on Saturday morning, I woke up and I saw a few of these and I said, you know what, let me try to put these into a list. And I did. I actually got a list of every single one of the 44 municipal and regional police departments in Ontario, every one of them. And I started finding their tweets. And when they didn't have a public statement, I went to their websites. And when they didn't have anything there, I reached out to the chiefs myself, emailed them and said, what are you going to do? And by Saturday evening, 42 of 44 had said, we are not going to do this. 42 of 44, almost every single one said, we have no intention of doing random stops. Our goal is education. We only use enforcement as a last resort. A lot of them were saying that, listen, we respond to complaints. We are not going to be proactively questioning people. They did the right thing. And by Sunday, the province had backtracked. They said they were going to, quote, refocus, unquote. And under the amended regulation, which they put into effect Saturday evening, they said, "Okay, but law enforcement will only be able to stop people if they have reasonable grounds to suspect that someone has attended an illegal gathering. Now, I would say that's not great, but it's better than presumption of guilt if someone is outside their homes, which is what that initial enforcement mentality communicated and conveyed to people. And I should say, by Sunday morning, the remaining two, the Chatham Kent Police Service and the Deep River Police Service, one in southwestern Ontario, the other in eastern Ontario, had put out their own statements saying that they weren't going to do it either. Now, they were kind of a day late and a dollar short, but small town police departments, I guess, didn't have uh, people working on the weekend to respond to these sorts of queries. But when all was said and done, 44 of 44 municipal and regional police departments said to the government, no, we are not going to be your police state enforcers. Only one police, and by the way, there were also First Nations police on top of that that similarly said it, like RAMA and Six Nations police. Only one police agency in the province said, we're going to go along with this, and that was the Ontario Provincial Police the OPP. But even then, by Sunday, the OPP had backtracked and said, no, 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 we're we're not going to do this. Don't worry, we're not doing any random stops. And what I've heard is that the OPP was actually dealing with concerns within its own ranks of, of frontline officers. I had a few email me that were saying, listen, this is not what we are going to do in our local detachments. So the OPP very quickly found itself with no legitimacy as the government found itself with no legitimacy. But even with this, the government has not acknowledged it was wrong. I don't know if you heard that clip closely from Sylvia Jones, the Solicitor General, but what she said is that this came about from Public Health Advice. What about legal advice? You're the Solicitor General. Did you get any input from law enforcement? Did you get any input from a constitutional lawyer? Did you at all run it by a lawyer to think, hey, you know, maybe this might not be something that's legal or constitutional? And at the very least, did you think for a moment about the message this would send To people, the message this would send to people in Ontario that on one hand, you're saying get out, go for a walk, get exercise, but on the other hand, police can stop anyone for no reason and say, why are you out of home? And they would have to prove that they are out of home for a state permitted reason. This is disgusting. This is absolutely disgusting. It's not just Ontario, by the way. British Columbia, even after seeing this colossal screw-up in Ontario, has done the same thing. British Columbia now has interprovincial travel restrictions and also intra-provincial. Travel within British Columbia is now very much challenged. You cannot book a campsite in an area of BC that is different from the one in which you live. You cannot book a hotel room in an area of BC which is different than the one in which you live. If you're in Vancouver and you want to go to Victoria for the weekend, you are not allowed to do that. If you want to go camping, which in this day and age is actually one of the safest activities for someone to engage in, an outdoor activity in the wilderness, away from people, socially distanced. Unless the bears are giving you COVID, you're probably fine. Uh, But if the bears close enough to give you COVID, you're probably... (laughs) The bear speaking moistly is not your biggest problem. And no longer is camping allowed unless you're doing it, you know, in your backyard, basically. So hotels, campsites... They all have to refund anyone if they're not from that particular health authority. And also, BC ferries will not allow bookings from campers and trailers. So they're trying to keep people indoors in their own homes. They're also restricting travel within the province. There are going to be roadside checkpoints. Now, Premier Horgan tried to make it out as though this is no big deal, that these roadside checkpoints challenging people as to why they're out of their homes. Ah, they're just like, you know, the ride programs for impaired driving at Christmas. This is what he said. There will be a fine if you're traveling outside of your area without a legitimate reason. So now driving around within your own province in your own car is something that will get you fined. But he said, oh, that's that's just the, that's just what we do. It's just like, you know, these just like these impaired driving stops we do around the holidays. So the presumption is of guilt. And now there are going to be border signs up along the BC-Alberta border telling you that you're only allowed to go in if you have an essential reason. If you want to book a hotel in BC and you are from outside of British Columbia, good luck. You better find some PO box that you can use as your address. And this is what's happening in a country whose constitution, by the way, guarantees mobility rights. So I hope that British Columbia will find a a similar pseudo-mutiny on its hands from police agencies saying that they have no interest in becoming police state enforcers. But in Ontario, there was no admission, even with this reversal, of any sort of wrongdoing. Paul Calandra, who's the Ontario government's house leader, came out on Monday and said, no, 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 this was just a communications problem. Yeah, you know, we, we, we made a mistake in the sense that we didn't communicate what we were doing well. I read the order. I heard Sylvia Jones. She communicated herself abundantly clearly. She wanted police to be able to stop and harass people for no reason apart from them being outside of their houses. And anyone who thinks that this was just a mistake of comms need only listen to the snitch culture that the Ontario government is similarly unleashing in this province. From the same press conference on Friday, here is Solicitor General Sylvia Jones responding to a reporter's question about whether people should snitch on their neighbours.
2: In terms of people calling um, to snitch, to inform, um, look, we all have a personal responsibility and I would hope that the vast majority of us would take that personal responsibility seriously. Um, when we see the ICU numbers rise, I would hope that people would take a second thought and consider their neighbors, consider those healthcare workers who have been working incredibly hard over the past twelve years. I'm never going to encourage people to inundate the bylaw enforcement or police departments with calls, but If it means saving lives, then I think we have to think about what your social responsibilities are as an individual to make sure that you don't empower other people and invite a whole bunch of individuals to your home
1: her only concern is that it might overburden government phone lines. That's the only concern. You know, if it can save a life, go wild, snitch on your mom, your dad, your sister, your kids, your dog, do whatever you want, but, but, but space your calls out throughout the day. Don't do it all at once. That might just overburden the government's phone lines. Apart from that, have at it, if it can save a life. This is the this is the COVID zero idea we'll talk about very shortly with Anthony Fury, This this idea that we need to do anything and everything we can, irrespective of the consequences on the economy, on civil liberties, on personal well-being, on police powers, on division of power, do anything and everything if it can just help one person. But this is not helping anyone, I can assure you. The restrictions that Ontario put in beyond the police powers involve shutting down playgrounds, shutting down outdoor recreation, which we know to be safe, ordering people in regions that are not causing any problems to stay at home and not have even a couple of friends over to their backyard, and shutting down Ontario's provincial border. Again, I mentioned mobility rights, a longstanding constitutional reality, and more importantly, a longstanding tradition in Canada of free movement within provinces. But now border checkpoints up at the Ontario-Manitoba border, at the Ontario-Quebec border. The day this went into effect on Monday, we had backups, I read in one report, of 10 kilometers, 10 kilometers long. Ottawa and Gatineau, which are essentially part of the same city in terms of people going back and forth, living on both sides, office buildings on both sides, all of a sudden have police checkpoints on the bridge for people who are going to work to have to prove that they're going for an essential reason. And let me tell you, there's no no reason to go into Gatineau at all, unless it's an essential reason. Ottawa is a little bit better. People might want to flee Gatineau. But the reality is, this did not save anyone. I read one story that said at one of these checkpoints over the course of several hours, police had turned away four cars. That was it, four cars. So everyone's needlessly inconvenienced, delayed for kilometers and kilometers, backups. Think of the impact on climate, by the way. Maybe this is the appeal I should be doing. I should be calling up the environment minister and saying, hey, you know what? All these people idling while they go through police checkpoints, that's gotta be bad for climate change. Maybe that'll be uh, the way. Use the less language against uh, what are big government status policies here. And, and this is coming from Doug Ford's conservative government. The B.C. shutdown is coming from B.C.'s NDP government. No longer is the shutdown mindset a left-right issue, if ever it was one. This is beyond that. This is beyond politics and ideology and political identity. The, the fault lines here are basically about big government versus freedom for citizens. And that latter group is becoming more and more elusive in pretty much all areas of the government and public health apparatus' response to this, which is why it's so important to expose this for what it is. I want to talk about this a bit more with my colleague, True North contributor and Toronto Sun columnist and op-ed editor, Anthony Fury. Anthony, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today.
0: Great to be here, Andrew.
1: Now, you made an observation that I I thought was a a very unique one. We're not hearing it from a lot of people in the media, which was that Ontarians didn't just rebuke this uh, expanded law enforcement power, but more broadly, they pushed back against this COVID zero narrative. Explain what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, I don't think they actively did that. They didn't know they were doing that, but kind of implicitly through them rejecting all of these outdoor restrictions, playground closures, and, and this basic idea that you have to stay at home regardless of the activity you're doing, regardless of what you're getting up to. They said, no, we don't care for that. We're reasonable people. We want to uh, flatten the curve or, you know, all those buzzwords we've been hearing. Okay, we're, we're, we're up for that. But hold on a second. These activities that we know have nothing to do with spread, uh, why exactly are you forcing that upon us? This is ridiculous ridiculous. And there's an important uh, distinction, clarification to be made here, Andrew, in that a lot of people think that what the Ford government is trying to do now is combat locations and activities that cause spread. That is not what they are doing. If you look at the latest Ontario Science Table PDF that was at the last presentation, there are multiple pages on that slide deck that talk about bringing down mobility data. So they are mm-hmm. just obsessed with the idea, Andrew, that how we how we deal with coronavirus isn't micro-targeting the locations causing spread, but just to force everyone to stay at home, uh, to give fewer reasons for the Google Analytics chart, which tells you how much people are driving around because they have anonymized cell phone data, and bringing that down, and there's even a table for recreation, meaning the uh, how much people are sort of going out and about in the parks and hanging out there, and they want to bring it all down. And that is consistent with this COVID-0 ideology. we got to get to zero cases by any means possible. Places like New Zealand, Andrew, which have actually closed the parks multiple times as recently as just last month. They thought coronavirus was gone in New Zealand. No, they still closed the parks, the playgrounds, last month.
1: That's an important point because I've had even from people that I would say are ostensibly on the right pushback when I criticize lockdowns because they say, you know, if we just did an Australia or New Zealand style lockdown, uh, a short but harsh one, we would beat it. But you're right to point out that those jurisdictions haven't beaten it.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I I, I always say is I find it really really bizarre. I mean, it flabbergasts me that we're in the 21st century. There's so many uh, really credentialed, bright minds in Ontario that we're privileged to have here. We're told we live in the age of analytics, of big data. It's a it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And you're telling me big data can't be used to actually deal with these problems here. We can micro-target, you know, ad buys for particular products, but we can't micro-target uh, the data coming out of public health. Instead, we have this, quite frankly, really, really... <sighs> The basic approach to coronavirus right now from COVID zero is, well, this virus spreads from person to person, so let's make it illegal for people to be near people. Look, if someone had put that on their public health uh, final exam, the very people, the professor's advocating for this right now, they would have failed those students two years ago. This, But this, it's no joke. Yeah. This has never been a part of public health literature. Infectious diseases, physicians who don't support lockdowns have, have made this very clear to me. It's not in any of the plans that Dr. Teresa Tam signed off on as late as 2018 about how to deal with this. I mean, uh, lockdowns are, are actually not a traditional public health protocol.
1: Yeah, you're right about that. And, and it's interesting how of the many shifts, even this is one that we've seen from the World Health Organization which has said, no, 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 lockdowns are not uh, something that we like. And and that's the one area where the governments have decided they're not going to defer to this. But th- this COVID zero idea is also a complete inversion of that stated goal of just make it so that we, if we do have harsh cases, we have hospital capacity, we can get our ducks in a row, the the flatten the curve line from what, 13 months ago. And now it's, it's you're right, moving more and more towards this idea that we need to do everything and anything we can until there are zero cases.
0: And what is so bizarre is at the same time, if you ask those very COVID zero advocates hey, is coronavirus becoming an endemic illness, meaning it's just kind of here to stay for the rest of our natural lives, hopefully at a much sort of lower level and hopefully much fewer deaths every year? They will all agree, yes, except uh, one of the latest COVID zero documents that a lot of these people were co-signatories on, the very doctors who were on television saying shut her down, but, oh, no, we didn't mean the playgrounds, we didn't mean the outdoor sports. Those very documents, not only do they call for the New Zealand model, which does involve playground shutdowns, they also call for continual suppression of the virus, meaning various restrictions and lockdown measures, until Canada gets to 40 cases per day. That's actually in this Canadian Shield document that COVID zero uh, advocates they liked and they co-signed it 40 cases per day. They came up with that because it's one case per million. 40 cases per day with a country with a border as as long as ours, not an island nation like Taiwan and New Zealand, when it's an endemic illness that we're also admitting we will never get rid of in our natural lives. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy talk is really what we can call COVID zero. It is total junk science.
1: Explain to me what's happening with Doug Ford's legitimacy as a, a leader right now. Because one thing I saw... On Friday, was that a lot of the uh, criticism that he was getting was from the right and the left? I I was not seeing any real defense. Of the Ontario police measures. Now the province has since backtracked a little bit on that, but as you know, they they've not admitted wrongdoing, and even the language they used was not, you know, we got it wrong. They said no, no, no. They were going to quote refocus unquote the powers. Paul Calandra yesterday gave a little bit more, but even then he said no, no, no. It was just a communications problem. What's happening here?
0: well when you ask what's going on with Doug Ford's legitimacy I mean nothing's going on with it there is no legitimacy right now they announced these measures on Friday a lot of people were immediately outraged closed down the playgrounds randomly stopped me and then by the weekend you had most police forces in Ontario saying we ain't doing those random stops I was bicycling around downtown and I saw all the new rules that are enacted and it, there's a lot yes the playgrounds were shut down but Uh, picnic tables are still banned. You can't sit on those. You can't uh, play catch with a friend in a park. That is illegal. All you can do is walk through parks and so forth. I can tell you, traveling through the streets of Toronto... Uh, nobody was following those rules. Some of them because they probably said, I'm going to do civil disobedience. Others because they don't listen to this stuff anymore. They don't care. They've tuned it out. And then you've had mayors like Patrick Brown and Brampton, the mayor of Aurora and others who have openly said these need to be repealed. So there's a major legitimacy problem. They've got to get these laws off the books because you can't have a society in which these laws are, are just everybody's kind of mocking them. Nobody's following them because if they think they have a problem on their hands now, well, if we're asking what's the point of these laws, why should we follow them? There's going to be a cascading effect. I guarantee you more and more uh, rule breaking is going to happen because of that. And the government's put themselves in a very dangerous situation where their legitimacy is collapsing right now.
1: Yeah, and you're right that that then makes it uh, very difficult for people to go along with advice or guidance that may actually be rooted in science if they're so used to stuff that is not. And, and the playground ban, I think, is, is a very real thing. I, I don't want to make it just about the symbolism, but symbolically, it also, I think, does reveal the government has just completely abandoned that idea of linking science with the guidance and and when you mentioned it at the beginning of our discussion that it's not about targeting where transmission is occurring parks I'm not aware of any outbreaks there and then for for Minister Christine Elliott deputy premier Christine Elliott, to say that people not wearing masks at park is at parks is part of the reason for spread is I whoa 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 like where's the evidence?
0: Yeah, it's absolutely shocking that they would go out and say numerous factually incorrect things during that press conference, which I think really frustrated people. I mean, are are there anomalous examples of outdoor spread in the literature? Sure. One of my favorite lines in one of those studies is that most examples of outdoor spread have an indoor component to them. And you're like, what? What does that mean? So there's an outdoor barbecue and then, well people decide to take it indoors to get some beer from the beer fridge, hang in inside in a in, in a close you know space for 20 minutes. Oh okay, so outdoor spread just wasn't outdoor spread. It was actually indoor spread. It, it's basically not really a thing uh, that's happening. And yet here we have all these restrictions on outdoor activities. It's it, it, If the people of Ontario want to say that's unacceptable, we got to get this rolled back. Well, they're already hearing from other mayors who are saying just that.
1: Anthony Fury is an op-ed editor and columnist at the Toronto Sun and my colleague here at True North. Anthony, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.
0: Likewise, thanks.
1: Unreal. And if you're not following Anthony already, please do. He's doing lots of great work at True North at the Toronto Sun and he has great observations on Twitter all the time. He mentioned briefly the mobility data that the government uses from Google and it's it's not Tracking people in the sense of, of, you know, oh, Andrew went to the convenience store or something like that. It is anonymized. Google does provide it. But here's the thing about the mobility data it does not distinguish between legitimate, essential movement and non-essential movement. And this was something I learned a few months back. I think it was in January that I was working on this. Actually, no, it was December. Because in December, Doug Ford had made a comment about people that are coming in from the US and not quarantining. And he was calling for harsher restrictions from the federal government. This was around the time that the province was for the first time trying to scapegoat the federal government. And I was desperately trying to get from the premier's office an acknowledgement of what this data were of of what these data were rather and where they were getting them from and what they were actually saying and they wouldn't provide anything and eventually they conceded that they were using anonymized Google mobility data but the problem is these data do not show people who are exempt from quarantine because they are essential cross-border workers, truck drivers, versus people who have just uh, skipped into the country and have decided they're going to flout their quarantine. So the data are actually useless in that way. Same as right now. If they're looking at mobility data as being the problem, people are moving around. Well, how do you know these people are not essential workers? How do you know these people are are not, even in the government's eyes, having a reason for being out in the world that the government approves? which in and of itself is a rather chilling and Orwellian statement. So anytime you hear talk about mobility as being the problem, know that it actually means nothing. It's people going out, it's people going around, but a lot of those people may have, even under the government's restricted approach, a right to be doing it. Although I would say under the Constitution, everyone does. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to talk about what Peter McKay called the stinking albatross around Andrew Scheer's neck, which is social conservatives in the Conservative Party of Canada This rhetoric was echoed by Conrad Yakabuski in a Globe and Mail column in which he says that like clockwork, the Tory stalking species known as the stinking albatross returns to Canada each election season after wintering in warmer climes where the culture wars occur year-round. He is taking aim at Kathy Wagenthal, a Conservative MP, who introduced a private member's bill that would ban sex-selective abortion, which is basically abortion that is decided for the sole basis of someone not wanting to deliver a child of a particular gender, almost exclusively because people do not want daughters for various cultural reasons, all of which are rooted in a very misogynistic view that females are less worthy of living than males. And in doing so, she has... And by the way, Kathy Wagenthal has always been a very reliable pro-life member of Parliament. She's never equivocated on this position. She's always been very transparent. And her voters in her riding have rewarded her by re-electing her time and time again. And she's decided that she wants to take aim at this problem, which we know is happening. There's not a lot of research on it, but it does very much occur. And I am, as a pro-life person, slightly concerned with sex-selective abortion restrictions for for two reasons. The the chief among them is that it, it tends to mask the problem. If you believe that abortion is wrong because it takes a life, it shouldn't matter what the motivation is for it. The reason I say that is because a bill like this makes it seem as though the intent is the problem more than the actual outcome. The other part of it is that I feel that, and this one is something I'm of two minds on, frankly, it, it almost is more of a political push towards pro-life policy than anything else. And and the reason for that is because it may well be effective. There are lots of people in Canada who are pro-choice. They would identify as pro-choice, but when it comes down to it, they would oppose sex-selective abortion. So bills like this tend to appeal to those people, but in a lot of ways, I almost feel that they mask. Again, if you feel, feel abortion is wrong, they mask what is wrong for reasons that have nothing to do with intent. So it ties into the reason I already mentioned. But at the same time, I don't want to question Kathy Wagenthal's motive. She's been a tireless advocate on this file. She believes what she believes. But it's interesting that now the the existence of a pro-life MP in Aaron O'Toole's conservative party is all it takes for the mainstream media to say, oh, well, Aaron O'Toole's got that hidden social conservative agenda. I mean, look at this story. Look at the photo used for the story. It's a photo of Aaron O'Toole. The entire analysis is based on this idea that Kathy Wagenthal's bill is that stinking albatross around Aaron O'Toole's neck. And a lot of the critics of Andrew Scheer, of Aaron O'Toole, of Stephen Harper, they're not good faith critics of this. They don't actually care about whether the leader is pro-life, whether the party will officially back any policy that's pro-life. They don't want pro-lifers to exist in Canada at all. And they don't, therefore, want any pro-life politicians to exist. And Aaron O'Toole, who literally said in no uncertain terms, I'm pro-choice, I believe in abortion rights, I've always believed in that, here's when and why I started believing in that, here's how long I've believed in it, I'm not going to do anything, and he's still getting hit with story. Oh, well, you know, the stinking albatross is back because an MP from, I think, Saskatchewan introduced a private member's bill, which, by the way, most Canadians, even those ardently pro-choice, would agree with. So this is why conservatives should never play by the left's rules, should never play by the mainstream media's rules, should never play on their terrain. And this is true whether you're talking about a carbon tax as we were last week, and it's certainly true when you're talking about social policy. This is what he writes, eventually a future conservative leader must understand that playing to the SOCONs is a losing strategy, period. It might help you win a leadership race, but it will leave you with a stinking albatross around your neck of which no amount of flowery perfume can disguise the stench. This is the mainstream media's characterization of people who value life. And one of the things that I, I found interesting is that pro-life candidates that seek the conservative leadership, whether we're talking about Leslie Lewis or Derek Sloan, they didn't say they expect it to be a socially conservative party. They wanted a party that simply respects that social conservatives are in it. And if the liberals were authentic about representing Canadians, they would recognize that they preside over a country that has social conservatives in it. So, whatever the group is, and again, statistics tend to be a little bit tricky on this. Uh, my friend Scott Hayward of Right Now has done tremendous work at trying to really look at genuine public opinion on this. And he points out that 82% of Quebecers support restricting sex selective abortion and 67% of Quebecers support legally restricting late term abortion. And that's just one recent example. 84% of Canadians support legally restricting sex selective abortion and 70% of Canadians support legally restricting late term abortion. This is very valid, up to date polling that suggests the mainstream media position, the Liberal government's position, the narrative is distinct from what ordinary Canadians think and feel. And you may think, okay, well, the Conservatives still have to win over people by getting their message out through the mainstream media. Sure. But I do want to believe, and perhaps this is an overly romantic notion, that voters reward authenticity. And when Andrew Scheer couldn't give a very clear position on abortion which was, well, I'm, you know, yes, I'm pro-life, but, you know, I know I won't touch it. And I mean, but my member, like no one knew, even pro-lifers had no idea what he was saying. Whereas Aaron O'Toole has given a tremendously clear position on it, and the mainstream media coverage is identical. He's clearly pro-choice, and the media coverage is, oh, well, yeah, those stinking albatross, stench pro-life people, they're they're dirty, smelly people, you know, no party wants them. That's really what Conrad Yakabuski is saying, by by taking Peter McKay's uh, metaphor and just extending it uh, beyond, which, <laughs> beyond the point at which any metaphor should be extended and still keep its original meaning. So what we have happening here is the beginning of the age-old conservative dilemma of feeling like their problem is not being conservative enough. And I'm not trying to preach to anyone right now on social issues. Whether you're watching and you're pro-life, pro-choice, doesn't matter to me. But understand that the conservative movement in Canada has people who believe this. And as we see from party conventions and internal races like nominations and leaderships, there may be more social conservatives than non-social conservatives in the Conservative Party, but at the very least, it's not a fringe group. And if you look at national polling, it's not even a fringe group in Canada itself. It is just painted as fringe by the people that believe they have a monopoly on which ideas are worth discussing and which ones are not. That does it for me for today. Before I wrap things up on this show, I want to tell you on, about an event I am participating in tomorrow. That is April 21st at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. A panel, lockdown, censorship, big tech, free speech, and radical gender ideology. That is a lot to pack into a 90-minute panel. And we've got uh, fantastic panelists, Barbara Kay and Salim Mansour, and, well, then just me. But it'll be a lot of fun. And Serena Singh, who's been a, a tremendous advocate for uh, Free Speech and Open Debate is moderating and hosting this. And I interviewed her a couple of years back and it was a great chat we had. So this is going to be a great panel tomorrow night. Glad to be a part of it. It's going to be on Zoom. So wherever you are, you can tune in online. But do make sure to register in advance. And the uh, details are on the screen right there in front of you. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We will talk to you in a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all.